our next guest is a uh, is a, a journalist international i would say like to class or not as an activist as more like a human rights advocate more like a, a, a genuine humanitarian uh and i say that um not in a cliche way but someone who really cares about people and the issues in which she's covering and collecting a lot of important information about some uh conflict zones uh in some cases on the ground in the middle east her name is Vanessa Bailey, and her blog is The Wall Will Fall. There's a link to her blog on our show page. Just click on her name. Uh, Vanessa is also a photographer of note, and you can see some of her photojournalism there on her blog. But she's also done a, some fantastic work of, at 21st Century Wire, and we welcome her this week on the show. Hello, Vanessa. Hi, Patrick. Nice to be with you again. Great to be with you too. Uh, well, I don't know where to start, but there, I mean, since we last spoke, Vanessa, there's a lot of stuff that's been going on. You know, I, I apologize, uh, to not just you, but also to my readers that I had disengaged from a number of major issues over Christmas. Um, just trying to do the administration of, um, 21st Century Wires website and we're testing plugins and doing all sorts of IT stuff that I, I end up doing too. Um, but you know, the, the, the information that I've been following your research, uh, over the last month and, uh, what ex- let's just, I don't know where to start and I'm going to let you start maybe, but I think, I think let's start with what's happening. This is where I want to go and, and this is where I want you to take us with the, the, the execution of the Shiite, um, cleric in Saudi Arabia, Al Nimr and, what the catalyst that what what that triggered and how this is related to Yemen as well and the rest of the of the region specifically with the Shiite populations in these countries and this brings us right back to Syria Hezbollah Israel and we can talk about the fake humanitarian uh the starving children of Mayday I think that's the correct pronunciation in Syria, and then we're going to move north through Turkey to Serbia and see what's going on there. This is an incredibly important time in history, and my biggest fear, Vanessa, is a lot of people are just not getting the right information to make a value judgment of what's going on, and instead, uh, prepackaged propaganda narratives are being spun in the place of the truth. And this is what I feel is going on. I'm seeing a lot of people who do know what's going on, though, and thanks to work by people such as yourself. But there's still a lot of disinformation out there in the mainstream, especially in the political level um, with our politicians. What is going on? Let's start with the Saudi. It looks like a planned provocation, Vanessa. It's the only way I can describe it. Uh, this person was executed intentionally in order to, to cause a chain reaction in the region tell us what tell us how you see it yeah i mean as you say patrick and thank you for (laughs) the glowing introduction um as you say this this is an incredibly complex situation um what is happening in madaya as you you rightly say and we'll come back to that um is probably a consequence of um not only the execution of sheikh nimra but i think we also have to go a little bit further back to um the um, arrest, the violent and brutal arrest of um, Sheikh Ibrahim uh, Zakazaki in Nigeria, in Zaria, and uh, the murder of many of his followers, and uh, the murder of uh, the sixth to be killed 
of his sons. Um, of course, as you know, we were actually with them um, in the Global Campaign to Return to Palestine conference in Beirut. So it was it was doubly, uh, truly upsetting to have been with them the day before and then to hear about this literally the day they got back. Wow. To um, I have to say... What, what we're actually seeing, and I, I was kind of thinking um, about it um, tonight, just before I came on, and I'd been talking to Catherine Schechtem, who, as I, I think you know, is, is an incredible um, Islamic scholar and um, political analyst. Um, I think what we're seeing um, in, in Nigeria, um, in Saudi Arabia itself, in Bahrain um, with Sheikh Ali Salman, we're seeing Saudi Arabia deliberately crossing um, societal, humanitarian, and um, sort of, uh, I, I can't even think of how to describe it, red lines of stability within these countries. Mm-hmm. Um, something that actually, I, I, I think, even the most um, hardline opposition to Saudi Arabia truly didn't quite expect them to do, because... These three men of not really only religious leaders, but tremendous voices of unity, of um, counter-wisdom to the brutality and oppression of the regimes that are being funded by the U.S. to keep them under the the non-democratic boot, let's say, in their countries. Um, And we've seen... Not so much, obviously, um, Sheikh Zakzaki was not executed, but he was brutally arrested. I mean, the photographs of him having been shot in both hands, beaten, um, and, and transported away, and still being held, we don't even know why. The shooting of his son, um, the violation of his wife, and, and, and the massacre of his followers. Then we have, on um, the 2nd of January, so straight as we come back into the new year in 2016, we have the execution of Sheikh Nimr along with 46 others. So an incredible mass execution in Saudi Arabia. They killed, they executed 157 last year in 2015. So they're already one third into their, you know, in, in, into their record number of 2015. We also have the imprisonment of Sheikh Ali Salman in Bahrain. All of them Shia, but it, I don't even think this is a sectarian issue, as as you said. And as Catherine Schechtam has, has echoed, this is almost like an Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria situation. You know, we can almost forget about sectarianism. This, this is a ploy to provoke global war hmm. um, and to bring Iran into the conflict. And, and also what we're seeing, um, you know, we've seen the same provocation of Russia um, in Ukraine, um, with the shooting down of the jet, with the bringing down of the passenger jet, with with the propaganda campaign against them, we're now seeing it against Iran, and we're seeing um, Saudi Arabia at the forefront of this global push for for war. And it's it's incredible. Um, I don't know if uh, if we can hear all these audio clips or not, but I had a, I had an audio clip of uh, um, Ed Royce, who was. Uh, the head of one of the, uh, I don't know if it's the Armed Service, the Foreign Affairs Committee, I'm not sure. But, um, I mean, literally almost sounding like Iran has started the chain reaction of the conflagration. It, 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 you know, very soft 
uh, kitted gloves when it comes to Saudi Arabia. It's unbelievable. Um, I th- what is, what's going on here, Vanessa, is I think the Shiites, Shiite Muslims have been painted uh, for quite some time now as, as the kind of the enemy, if you will, uh, and of the West. But now they've really been engaged by Saudi Arabia in a kind of heavy-handed way. But also Israel is waiting behind. And so this is where Saudi Arabia and Israel uh, become a kind of a merger, right? Their interests are completely aligned right now. Their military interests are now perfectly aligned, right? Absolutely, yes. Is, uh, how dangerous is this? It's absolutely dangerous. And, I mean, I think what you have to be well aware of, um, and I think this is what we have to get across to our listeners, you know, on January the 3rd, the Grand Ayatollah Mosavi Dabili, he issued a fatwa in which he strictly forbade and condemned violent retaliation against this, this heinous crime of this execution of Sheikh Nimrah. Um, and, and I'll quote, He says, it is necessary that the protests by Muslims in all cases, and especially in the case of the martyrdom of uh, Sheikh Nimra Bakr al-Nimra, to be conducted in a way that will not give any excuse to the opponents and enemies, and God forbid to place them in a higher position in the international opinion. So, very similar to Russia, we're seeing a tremendous amount of, of forbearance and wisdom and uh, diplomatic management of the situation, which, of course, we never see. <laughs> it's a reaction from Western governments and from, from their allies, be it Saudi Arabia or be it Israel. But, yes, certainly, um, sectarian division, um, particularly um, any sort of hostility towards their arch enemy, uh, the um, Shia brigades of Hezbollah, is going to serve Israel handsomely. And we're definitely seeing that in, in, in the situation in Madaya, which, again, I mean, we'll come back to this unless you want to discuss this now. But what we saw was the situation in Madaya suddenly blew out of all proportion when, immediately after the execution of Sheikh Nimr. So almost as if it was is scheduled, right? Yeah. It's, the PR campaign was ready to go. Now, explain to people exactly where in Syria Madaya is and then... Just explain to people what's going on, you know, where where the pieces are positioned on the chessboard, as it were, and how this looks like this is basically a continuation of a pre-planned uh, narrative being driven by the West and Saudi Arabia and its coalition allies. Absolutely. Um, well, Madaya basically um, is a Sunni, Sunni uh, predominantly uh, Muslim village. Um, north of Damascus, near Kalimun and Zabadani. Zabadani, just to make clear, um, was the area where the Palestinians settled when they were first driven out of Palestine. It then evolved into what can be considered um, the main area or the main hub for Hezbollah. It's certainly the main supply hub, let's say, from Lebanon into Syria. So it maintains, to a huge extent, it maintains the axis of resistance against the NATO proxy terror armies and obviously um, with the Saudi backing and the Israeli backing. So, so that's why we have to understand why this area is particularly pivotal to Israel in that region because Israel's entire security and regional um, agenda depends upon their ability to destroy and undermine and even 
completely break down the resistance, uh, the axis of resistance to them in the region. So if we look at the consist of what Madaya comprises of, um, there are about 23,000 inhabitants, not 40,000, as we are being told by um, the more extreme mainstream media and the Avaz petition. Um, there are 600 militants occupying Madaya itself, many of whom were from Madaya. Um, they consist of Ara al-Sham, which is about 60%, uh, 30% al-Nusra, which is al-Qaeda, and 10% of the so-called moderate rebels, um, the Free Syrian Army. Um, at the start of the conflict, we can say Madaya could be described as having supported the moderate rebels. Um, in the sense that they probably decided that it was quite a good idea to, to run with them and to try and get independent governance. But we've also seen, and this is where it sort of becomes very complex, we have seen pro-Assad demonstrations being filmed in Madaya fairly recently. We've also seen video footage of civilians arguing with militants saying, why would they not allow food to come in? Um, so what we're actually seeing, which is that, you know, it's been repeated previously in Yarmouk, where we're being told time and time again where the propaganda has peaked at specific times. Uh, one particular time, of course, was just prior to the 2014 elections, where obviously the, it was important to undermine Assad's popularity by peaking the propaganda on Yarmouk, where we saw photographs of very well-fed um, terrorists holding starving babies. We have to start asking ourselves why, and we have to start looking behind the propaganda. Um, in Madaya itself, we've had and we've seen a Red Cross official make a clear statement that they went in on the 19th of October and they delivered enough food to last for two months, which would have taken them realistically up until the end of December. On the 28th of December, the UN went into Madaya and they evacuated 126 injured terrorists, Ara al-Sham fighters. They took them out of Madaya on the 28th of December. So here we have suspension of disbelief because we're being asked to believe that these civilians will have starved in 10 days. And we're also being asked to believe that the UN would have gone into a village, evacuated injured fighters and left starving children behind. This is where it, it starts to become, you know, it, it, it's frightening, the collective hypnosis that we are, are being subjected to in the West, in the sense that we believe and we run with these stories before, literally, as they come off the press, we run with them. Mm -hmm. And our humanitarian reflex kicks in and our brain switches off. That's the only thing. <laughs> like, it, it reminds me of, I don't know if you've seen the film Kingsman. Yes. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's honestly, it's this. this. It's, you know, it's almost like we have a SIM card in our phone that activates at certain specific times and switches our brain off and switches some other um, temporal lobe on that, that prevents us from, from using logic and rationale to see behind the propaganda. It's, this, this is really... Madaya has been an extraordinary landmark because almost as soon as those photographs came off the press, for instance, in Vice, um, Vice produced photographs that were proven fake within minutes of them being published. 
Now, they retracted them. They took them off and then they um, published um, a correction note. Mm. But not before those photographs had then been picked up by Al Jazeera, by the BBC, um, by various other organizations and obviously the social media brigade. Yeah, well, they, they, they cascade on yeah. social media, like, yeah. like on Facebook and Twitter, Instagram. They just go viral in such a rapid rate. I saw the shares and the likes on some of those photos and videos, yeah. Vanessa. I mean, it's in the hundreds of thousands, right? Uh, so- AJ, uh, the Al Jazeera, the AJ Plus, um, the, which is their sort of video media um, stream. Mm-hmm. Um, the first video that they brought up, I think it had 10 million shares. <laughs> 10 million shares mm. in, in 24 hours, under 24 hours. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and this is where this has been an extraordinary propaganda storm, which is just whipped up. It's not necessarily whipped up out of nowhere, but it's, it's, it's just gone extraordinarily, um, virulent, almost instantaneously yeah the other well the other thing that about the shares vanessa is a lot of these organizations now and i think this is uh, a little bit illegal but they're using various bot technologies uh to basically uh like ping like it's like uh pong off each other that create uh immediately drive the numbers into the millions okay so so they they don't have as many shares maybe as they but when once it once they achieve a certain watershed point like twenty thousand thirty thousand people see that and everyone's sharing it because they the the herd's moving in that direction this is how social media works so um that's another another part of the fraud is a techno fraud as well yeah well absolutely and i think um i was told that um Avi Shapiro of, of Vice, um, when he was asked to remove the photographs, he apologized and he said, oh, but you know what? Um, we got them from the residents in Madaya who had seen them on Al Jazeera. So we assumed they were correct. Now, <laughs> <laughs> just kind of wash, the, you know, roll that around in your head for a minute <laughs> because that's quite extraordinary. So, yeah. So they're trying to they're trying to fob it off on Al Jazeera when they did it themselves. Right. Well, and also the simple fact that um, civilians within Madaya can't, they can produce photographs that have been taken from Al Jazeera, but they can't take a photograph of their own starving relatives. Yeah, well, this is, you heard of the yeah. fog, you heard of the fog of war, you, heard, you know that yeah. term. This is the fog of media. This is the, yeah. this is what we have to deal with now, where disinformation is more powerful than information, okay? Where you have to work twice as hard to, to basically debunk and discredit, uh, mainstream propaganda and the, the, the put all of our effort, part of it has to go into that. And people, a lot of people just don't, a lot of people just can't see what's between what's real and what's not, maybe because they just don't have a discerning eye. You can put a, a, a photo of a slaughtered family. You put a caption on it like, look what the look what the Muslims have done. How can it be a religion of peace? I saw one of these on Facebook, right? And it yeah. got shared 250,000 times and liked and hundreds of thousand times and people on all these angry comments below it. And I'm looking at it and there's no bullet holes in any of the people. Um, so I'm like, uh, there's just some maybe blood on the T-shirt. It could be a staged photo. And it's been attributed to uh, ISIS massacring a Christian family somewhere in Syria, 
um, or Iraq, but we don't actually know where this photo comes from. I don't know when it was taken, what date it mm. was, nothing. It could be from a film set. Mm. Absolutely. Know? I mean, the, the, the other classic was the Ben Affleck tweet, um, which again uh, went viral. Oh, no. What did he do? <laughs> oh, did you not see it? I didn't see it, um, no. Uh, I he, can't wait. Um, he tweeted uh, the photograph of the little girl, the, the little girl with, I, I'm sorry, her name escapes me right now, um, with the big blue eyes. Um, and then next to it was a photo of a starving kid, um, dreadful photograph. And I think his tweet read something like, um, my poor little princess starving in Madaya. Well, it's, you know, immediately that was, was leapt upon. Um, by most people that know know the reality, and in fact today, or I think it was yesterday, um, her parents um, published um, a protest in the Daily Star media in Lebanon, saying, "Well, hold on, you know, this is our daughter who is alive and well in Lebanon, um, and this is an appalling um, and cynical exploitation of of a of a child." For propaganda purposes. Um, so, you know, like every single photograph that has been put out there has pretty much been debunked and has been proven to be fake. Some of them were even from the UK. Some of them were from other countries. Certainly the majority of them were for, from different areas of Syria um, going back to 2013. Some of them were used and recycled for Yarmouk, but mm. were in fact from pre-Yarmouk. So, you know, we're seeing the same. And, and as we said, even more brazen. I mean, we saw recycling recently of the photographs of the bombing of the paint factory in Duma, where I don't know if you remember, but the various um, anti-Assad brigades used it to try and say that, oh, well, this was Assad, um, you know, he'd murdered so many people that the streets were running with blood. And in fact, it was a bombing of a... Of a paint... It was literally a paint factory. A paint factory. I, you know, oh. I mean... <laughs> And of course, again, this went viral. Yeah. But in, coming back to Mataya and, and coming back to, to the serious aspect of this, um, we have to look at, at the reality on the ground. Mataya, in reality, has been under Syrian Arab army siege since August 2015, but we have to ask why. And again, we've discussed this time and time again. You know, our. Um, prostitute ring of, of media eunuchs that work for the imperialist pimps. Absolutely. I mean, they never ask one salient question in any of these situations that arise. Um, and if we look into it and if we start to investigate the situation, which I managed to do in 24 hours with relatively limited resources, um, the reason for the siege becomes evident when one considers the Ara al-Sham siege of Kafira and Fuwa in Idlib, which are both Shia villages, that have fundamentally been under siege since 2011. Since 2011 to March 2015, they were under partial siege, but were still being shelled on a pretty regular basis by the Ara al-Sham terrorists that were surrounding them. Um, since March 2015, they've been under full siege, Full siege. So absolutely no supplies have been allowed in by Ara al-Sham. The only supplies they've been receiving are from Syrian Arab um, Air Force drops, airdrops of bread 
There's been no clean water. There's been no medical supplies being allowed in by these so-called humanitarian terrorists that are occupying Madaya. So we've seen recently um, that there has been, um, they've managed the, sorry, the Iranian um, brokered peace deals that are going on in Turkey, um, the negotiations between Iran, Turkey, and Ara al-Sham to try and secure the release of the Shia families uh, in Kafira and Fua, um, did succeed to release 300 families, um, I think it was in November or December, and the deportation of a number of militants to Turkey. But what has actually happened is that we believe that Israel is now putting pressure upon Adal Sham leadership to prevent them negotiating further amnesty. In other words, to prevent them allowing the Madaya rebels to leave Madaya safely and to receive amnesty from the Assad government. So the reason, as we've discussed, that Israel is pressuring al-Sham to carry out their dirty work in Zabadani is because they want Zabadani cleansed of the Hezbollah brigades. Mm -hmm. We've we've talked about the reasons behind this. It's to destroy the axis of resistance. So, so just 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 summarize that. So, yeah. Uh, so how so how is Israel exerting its influence uh, in, in in within Syria here? And is is this the ulti- Is this the goal of Israel? Is to get Hezbollah into uh, one geographical area and then uh, maybe perhaps come in with airstrikes afterwards, like they've done in the past. Um, I'm not sure whether Israel would go that far, but um, who's to say um, currently? <laughs> That's, I hate to say that because we're seeing such an escalation of um, lunacy. and. Um, so, so you have Saudi-backed rebels on the ground fighting yeah. in Hezbollah. You've got Israel offering tacit air support uh, and, and putting diplomatic pressure, political pressure. What kind I, well, of pressure I are they putting? Is, is the negotiations are ongoing in Turkey with the Ara al-Sham leaders. What was happening, from what, from what I'm understanding, from what I'm being told, was the Ara al-Sham leaders were being pressured by Israel to not release the rebels in Madaya because they want them there in order to overwhelm um, the Hezbollah brigades in Zabadani. So they don't want the rebels leaving Madaya. So what is happening is that um, it's quite possible that the rebels that originally came from Madaya want to accept the amnesty. Certainly the civilians are not happy at being basically starved by their own family, if you look at it that way. <laughs> so what's the pur- so the purpose of the propaganda then? All the fake photos, the starving children, the international outrage, the crying for, oh, please save the children. So is... I'm guessing it's the West calling for a humanitarian corridor, which is really going to be a rebel corridor, right? Absolutely. And what you're also seeing um, is, I mean, I think the RAF is offering to um, fly in with food drops. Oh, a weapons drops, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> food drops, um, food drops my ass. No, <laughs> pardon my French. No, I'm serious. This, this is exactly what this is exactly what's happened uh, in yep. some of the other uh, spots uh, along the Turkish border, and it's exactly what the U.S. has been doing in northern Iraq. Okay, we- yep. weapons drops. Yep, and we're also seeing running parallel to that. Um, we're seeing because what we're seeing is exactly what we saw in Yamuk is is not precisely starvation. Well, it's engineered starvation for propaganda purposes. 
um, by the occupying rebels, Al-Asham, I was told off for calling them rebels the other day. I, I will put inverted commas around that. Um, in Madaya itself, who are stockpiling the food supplies that have come in. Let's remind ourselves that the Red Cross delivered on October the 19th enough food for two months. So that is being stockpiled. Even one fundraiser that I saw the other day, which I believe was for one of the sort of um, Soros-backed NGOs that we've been talking about previously, um, actually stated in their fundraiser that food was at such extortionate prices that the people couldn't afford to buy it. So in other words, it's being stockpiled and it's being sold for profit. Um, kilo of rice at $150, for example. By, but by, we're also by, seeing... Sorry. By rebel by, gangs, by rebel gangs, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Who are taking the food in, exactly what they did in Yama, taking the food in, stockpiling it, and then selling it or withholding it for propaganda purposes from the civilians. They're also... It's also been reported to me that they've been using those civilians as human shields. So we're seeing a repetition of, of previous situations. I'll keep using Yamuk as an example, but there have been other situations similar to this, like Homs, for example. Um, and so basically um, what we're seeing happening here is that the Syrian Arab army has put Madaya under siege, but we, you know, we can break down the propaganda by saying, well, hold on, yes, it's been under siege, but they have allowed humanitarian supplies in. Mm-hmm. They've allowed the UN in, they've allowed the Red Cross in, and today and yesterday they've been allowing other supplies to go in. Yeah. Um, so the reason that they've put Madaya under siege is to put pressure on the Ara al-Sham leadership in Turkey negotiating with Iran in order to protect Kafara and Fua, which is under full siege from Ara al-Sham. And the very interesting point that was made, I think it was only made in the Arabic version of the Red Cross spokesperson's um, statement, was that he said, and he said it very clearly, he said, not only do I, can I not verify these photographs that are being circulated by the media, because as far as I'm concerned, we took in enough food to last the correct amount of time. But not only that, and this is really important, this almost turns the whole kind of tide of propaganda against Assad that has been going on since 2011. He said, very categorically, he said, we can enter any single government-held area with aid we are allowed in, except with the exception of Derizor. But he said, any moderate rebel, terrorist-held area... We cannot enter. We cannot. We cannot get food or supplies into civilians in those areas. This is huge. Yeah. This is the best humanitarian agency to make this kind of statement. So that should Which be the headline. That should be the yes. headline, right? Absolutely. But rebels. Of it so what's the headline? Should be rebels withholding food supplies to starving residents. Correct. Absolutely. So, but that, but that's not the headline we're getting. We're getting what? It, so, what are they giving us instead, Vanessa? Well, what they're giving us instead, and this is where we come on to how this serves and how this um, leads on from Sheikh Nimr's execution, because um, subsequent to Sheikh Nimr's execution, of course, what we saw was was a tidal wave of protest against, um, quite rightly, against Saudi Arabian um, uh, brutality. And, and also lawlessness. You know, um, I, I think you picked up on my debate with um, ex-ambassador to Syria, Robert Ford, the other day. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And you know what what we're seeing as as this um, incredible um, anti-Iranian backlash. I mean, his tweet. I'm trying to remember exactly the wording of it. Was fundamentally well. It's a bit of a shame about the execution of Sheikh Nimrah. But maybe if Iran had got out of Syria, this wouldn't have happened. Now, <laughs> you, you can't put a more veiled threat out there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so. then we're also seeing almost his next tweet was um, something along the lines of, well, this is all down to Hezbollah. Hezbollah are enforcing the siege on Madaya. Hezbollah, a Shia organization, are causing people to starve. And this is, this is, you're seeing it. Then it was picked up by um, Karim Shaheen, the Guardian um, journalist in Lebanon, who's been posting anti-Hezbollah, um, fundamentally anti-Shia propaganda since that moment. Since that moment, since the execution of Sheikh Nimrod, suddenly. And then, of course, we're seeing the backlash. Um, what, by what's the Guardian journalist's name again? Uh, Karim Shaheen. Karim Shaheen. So, so what you find, um, you know, in, in in America we have Operation Mockingbird. There's there's a different name to the program now, probably, but this is where the 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 intelligence services would embed people in editorial positions, journalist positions, and producer positions in television, newspapers, etc., in order to control narratives and messaging. Well. Um, I spoke to one MI5 ex-agent who was embedded in the Telegraph for a number of years. That was his first job out of Oxford. And uh, he told me about all the other people working in all the different other positions in television and newspapers, also working for the intelligence agency. Uh, and so what, so this is how they synchronize uh, events and talking points so that it rolls like a campaign. Okay, this is uh, so. This is information management, and it's done at the highest level. And uh, to, if you think the Guardian is independent and they're just in the business of doing uh, wonderful journalism, or that uh, the Times or the Telegraph or any of these papers um, do not have the hidden hand of that's uh, that's that's stretching all the way through the Foreign Office from MI5 and whatever, then it's incredibly naive to 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 not know to not know that. Um, that's exactly what I read through that. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I mean, he went so far. Um, <clears throat> he he basically said, uh, if Hezbollah don't deny that they are in Madaya, then they must be in Madaya. And that was the basis. That was basically the extent of his investigative journalism. Yeah, really great award-winning yeah. journalism there. Fantastic. <laughs> Just about as good as uh, Vice. Vice. Vice is another... Uh, what I think definitely the CIA have uh, some people implanted, embedded in that organization, if not running it. Um, Vice is the, one of the only media outlets that managed to have their reporters running around with ISIS, believe it or not. So you have to ask yourself, how do you get a nice, cushy embed with ISIS? Well, you can only assume that both of those organizations are being run and managed by Western intelligence agencies. That's my the only conclusion I can come to. Um, and so when I see Vice running fake photos in order to, what is that propaganda for? It's to, it's to get a humanitarian corridor or some uh, increased military intervention in the region. That's all it is. And so when I see Vice leading the charge, and Vice is basically targeting millennials. So what, what they did when they set up HBO 
runs Vice, okay? Uh, their board has people from the Council on Foreign Relations on it. So they're meant to be edgy and cool, cutting edge, but they're really just a brand that they designed to stick below the mainstream media for the millennials that don't trust maybe Fox and CNN as much and don't tune into the mainline networks, the younger millennials, they, they'll go to Vice and they think they're getting like on the ground, cutting edge information unfiltered, right? But in, in the, the reality is they're not. They're getting totally filtered, totally spun, and in some cases more bombastic. Uh, than even what you see on on the sort of bigger broadcast networks. So to me, Vice is a total sham. It's a complete fraud. They do such shoddy work. It's it's absolutely incredible. This, the the I cherry picked a couple of articles in the past. I mean, literally, it's like they're defending the government. It, they're defending Washington. They're they're sort of like a really nice little transparent screen to sort of protect the state department uh and get all the young people thinking it's all really cool you know it's it's mm-hmm. it's one of the biggest frauds in in media in my opinion and anyway, <laughs> i might i might just be you know a little bit extreme in my opinion <laughs> but um and uh, bill maher is not n- not the nicest guy in the world he's you know he's one of the sort of biggest jerks um he makes makes a career out of being hated by people, which I think is wonderful, sort of karmic, karmic uh, position in the world. But um, yeah, so he's he's really one of the sort of I think he's on the board of Vice, I believe. Freed Zakaria might be on that board as well, and a couple of other interesting uh, uh, neoconservative types. You know, really sick. It, it, yeah. it just makes my stomach turn. But, sorry about that. And Ben Affleck, uh, don't get me started there. <laughs> Jesus, it's just terrible. Yeah, <laughs> that's what they do. Him, Leonardo DiCaprio, Ben Affleck, and all these sort of people—they're um, like—they're like lightning rods for the millennials. You know, don't they, get me Angelina Jolie because uh, yeah, they tweet something, they're <laughs> photographed somewhere, and people gravitate towards that because it's a recognizable brand. And then, so if they can carry an issue for it, so they might as well be working for the State Department or mm-hmm. for the Foreign Office or whoever, because that's exactly yeah. what they're doing. They're helping them advance their foreign policy directives uh, through public relations stunts. That's what Ben Affleck did there. You know, so he's on the he, he must be on the uh, on the payroll or something. I don't know what. Maybe he wants to run for president. I don't know. He's got the George the George Clooney uh, um, disease. You know, it fancies about being in politics. But um, I don't know. Josh, sorry about that. But uh, <laughs> that's quite alright. I'm sorry about that. No. So so on a serious note, okay, yeah. this is the situation in Syria. I think we've um, you know, and and let's also reiterate how successful uh and i'm not i'm not advocating uh uh for i'm not campaigning for Bashar al-assad but they have had a successful uh peace and reconciliation uh movement in that country that's very successful i mean with tangible results so far and that should be getting the full support of the so-called international community but it's being ignored because it's not uh, doing what what Washington and London and Paris want, which is more bloodshed. Um, it's actually stopping bloodshed and de-escalating uh, uh, internal conflict in our country. I mean, how how underestimated 
is this. I mean, this is an incre- this should be a headline story, right? Absolutely. Um, you know, and, and it won't be. We know it won't be. I mean, I think also the, the other quick point to make about Madaya is the fact that, as far as we're aware, no people have actually died from the starvation. I mean, I'm not belittling the conditions that Madaya is living under, and it's not easy, but then it's not easy throughout Syria, and that is because Syria is under siege from NATO, the U.S., Israel, and the Gulf states. You know, and, and we can't, we, we need to sometimes sort of rise up above and see the bigger picture and look at the fact that the U.S. has pretty much um, the world under siege. Um, and if we compare the situation in Madaya to the situation, as I mentioned, in Kafra and Pua, which are predominantly Shiite villages, um, over 1,700 civilians have been massacred there um, since 2011. 300 have died since March 2015. Um, they are living under abject conditions. And we're certainly not seeing very many photographs being got out of there. I mean, we were covering this, this entire situation for a fair amount of time. There's very few mainstream media um, journalists that have even deigned to, to give it more than a sort of page three um, column. And so, you know, my question to them is, is, hang on, why are these lives more important in Madaya than they are in Kafra and Fua? And I can only say that this is just another form of anti-Shism um, that we're seeing. You know, we're Absolutely. seeing the demonstrations by, by the way, the white helmets holding up protest banners saying, you know, if you don't release um, the Madaya civilians, we're going to burn Kafara and Fua, we're going to destroy them. Oh, um, the, the White Helmets, the humanitarian yeah, organization. Yeah. yeah, an organization that are impartial and neutral and unarmed. That's that's the uh, that's Al Nusra. Basically, that's the Al Nusra Front. That's their humanitarian uh, uh, um, franchise. Is basically yeah. called the White Helmets, and then yeah. it's funded by the British Foreign Office and whoever else. I don't know if the EU chip in money as well, but. Um, well, see, Soros, um, yeah, I mean, we've, you know, you know from the work that we've yeah, been doing. Yeah, covered that, yeah. The majority of the NGOs can, can link back to Soros and to the various governmental agencies without question. You know, there's not one that is impartial that's on the ground in Syria right now. Yeah, they're um, all political. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and this is the problem. It's, it's, this is what we're fighting against. It's, it's, Syria is almost, um, it's almost like the last battle. Um, it's it's almost the, the one place where every single propaganda fault line is being exposed and exposed and exposed. Yep. But people still keep buying into this, this um, I, I don't know what to describe it as, this collective um, suspension of disbelief, this collective hypnosis. And this is what, I have the feeling, I have the positive feeling that Syria is going to break the back of this. It's going to break the back of this propaganda machine of this religious industrial complex, this military industrial complex, and this humanitarian industrial complex that is being unleashed upon Syria to try and simply to, to regime change. Yeah, um, I agree. I yeah. agree. Um, and I think, you know, another point that we have to make is, again, what we're seeing, um, if we link together all of these these executions, um, these instances of brutality, it is, it, it, they are attempting to destroy the people that can bring cohesion and unity and peace 
and some semblance of a true democracy to this world. You know, we're seeing it. Whatever we think of Assad, and again, I was discussing this with Catherine Chekdom, and she was very honest. She said at the beginning of the conflict, she said, I wasn't too sure about him. But she said, now, I, I have to support him because he is the one person that is going to pull Syria through this. Mm-hmm. And he is the one person that is going to ensure unity gets them through this. And so for that reason alone, he must be supported. Sheikh Zakzaki in Nigeria must be supported. The death of Sheikh Nimra must be protested. Um, Sheikh Ali Salman in Bahrain must be liberated. Yemen must be protected from uh, a complete genocide that is being carried out by Saudi Arabia at the moment. Why? Because Yemen threatens Saudi Arabia with its own secularism, with its own um, ability to self-manage, its own um, aspiration to, to being a democracy. If, if Yemen were to succeed in what it had actually organized just prior to the bombing, and this has been talked about, as we said, by Jamal Benamar, the, the UN envoy, um, if it had achieved what it had set out to achieve, just before Saudi started bombing. It, Yemen's success in politically bringing um, resolution to its country and to its people would have flung that spotlight onto Saudi Arabia as being the despotic regime that it is. And so everywhere that we're seeing a possibility of peace, cohesion of all factions of society, Sheikh Sagsaki in Nigeria was bringing together unifying Christians, atheists, Jews, um, Shia, Sunni, not only in Nigeria, but across Africa, which is why he has been imprisoned and brutalized and oppressed, and his people and his followers are being attacked. Not be- not only because they are Shia. The, the, the Shia is, is just a label that people are putting on it to to. to, to to create that whole propaganda campaign and to, to maintain that overarching Sunni-Shia divide. But it's not about that. What it's actually about is destroying those who could bring us peace, resolution, and reconciliation. Yeah, yeah, eliminating eliminating uh, real potential leaders uh, yeah. and, and, and really people who could deliver a really big impact in, the posit- in a positive direction. You know... Yeah. You know, in America, you have all these uh, people who uh, call themselves uh, patriots or whatever, and they're all talking, and you hear them on the radio all the time. The, if I listen to uh, Sean Hannity, Glenn Beck, Mike, uh, Michael Savage, but especially that annoying Manchichi lookalike, uh, Sean Hannity, the caliphate, the caliphate, the caliphate, it's just, it, my, my head's about to explode because they just can't stop talking about the caliphate, the caliphate, okay? Now, now, and, and they're all against the, and the Iranians and the Iranians and the Iranians. Let me tell you a little news flash for all you patriots and all you conservatives, all you geniuses out there. Saudi Arabia is trying to create a, cal- a Sunni caliphate and trying to wipe out any any secular nation states within its uh, within its orbit, including Syria and Yemen. And if you and so they've they've tricked you all 
fools in America to think that Iran is uh, 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 involved in Yemen and is fighting a proxy war against Saudi Arabia, when in fact it's Saudi Arabia trying to achieve complete hegemony in the region to create that caliphate, to make a place where ISIS can thrive in the future in places, or that they will, the Saudi style of Wahhabist uh, theocracy will thrive, whatever it is, that caliphate that you're all afraid of, all you people in America, uh, in Europe, um, your governments in Washington and Britain are allied with Saudi Arabia, making that caliphate happen, okay? Mm. Get it through your thick heads. I can't believe the level of stupidity uh, yep. and ignorance that people have, that they've been fooled so easily. With 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 not much effort, really, and it's, right. it's like a testament to a how stupid people are, how <laughs> thick they are. I'm going to have to say this because it's just right there in front of your face. Yeah. You know, it's just they're just shoving lies down people's into people's ears, and they believe that Iran is trying to take over, and uh, it, it, they believe that Iran is the biggest sponsor of state terror in the world. I don't know how many times I've heard this. It's but, like that wonderful, is it that wonderful meme which shows all of the U.S. Um, military bases around Iran? You know, the, the, it's like, um, well, Iran's so dangerous because it's like, it's allowing our military bases to surround it. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 it's so, yeah, it's, so there's, it's sort there's, of mind-blowing, actually. It is mind-blowing. So um, this is what's going on. So if you don't support the people of Yemen... Against Saudi Arabia, then you are basically supporting the destruction of a secular government in the Middle East, a secular nation state with a very rich cultural history in Yemen, okay? Uh, much richer than anything uh, in, in comparison around the world with a lot of other civilizations, okay? Older, uh, got a great, amazing art, architecture, literature, poetry, uh, lots of things, okay? That's being destroyed and wiped out, potentially, in Yemen. Syria, the same thing. They're, they've already done it. I mean, you just look at, look at what they've done to Syria. Look what they've done to Palmyra, okay? The, the, the cradle of Western civilization is there, and it's being erased and expunged, okay? So... If, so, and, and yet, in John, and you want to back John McCain, who wants to just overthrow the Syrian government and allow the, his his breed of terrorists to overrun the country? Okay, that's exactly what's going on. There is no mis there is no argument about that. Okay, anybody who knows knows that's what's going on. People who are ignorant, like many radio talk show hosts in America and so-called journalists and uh, uh, people on news anchors who are just completely ignorant. Okay, that they're backing the destruction of secular nation states without even knowing it. Mm. It's just unbelievable, but that's what we've got, and yeah. we have we have to. Uh, uh, I'm not I'm not altogether negative uh, about it, Vanessa. <laughs> I, I, I'm very positive. No, seriously, Patrick, this this Madaya situation has just. Really, I've reached sort of head-banging on the wall um, status on this it, one. It has, but I've seen more people call bullshit on this one than any yeah. other thing before. So I am like really positive about that. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it, I think what it's given us is a platform to be able to say, you know, remember Madaya. Whereas before we were saying, literally, remember Iraq, remember, you know, we were scrabbling to, yeah. to, to make them connect in their minds to previous situations. I mean, we know that, you know, the dress rehearsal for this 
um, was Kosovo, which was then obviously swallowed, uh, followed by Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Syria, and Ukraine. And Coney, you know, Coney, Coney 2012. Do you remember yeah, that one? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was another kind of PR yeah. Madaya type campaign. But yeah, absolutely. so. So we've yeah. got a good vocabulary of how this kind of fraud, this humanitarian fraud, uh, transpires. And I think a lot, there's a, there's a pretty big lexicon out there. I, I really think that they're coming to, the, they're coming to the end of the rope with this one in Syria. However, Vanessa, um, that's not to say that they'll try, they can try this in many other places around the world, but at least people are understanding and being able to recognize, um, the, the sort of patterns of deception through, uh, social media and through networks like Al Jazeera and Vice and who I think are completely corrupted, uh, and are not doing journalism at all. Uh, they're basically doing public relations for foreign policy uh, agendas, right? That's yeah, what I see. You know, and if, if we go back to, you know, you were talking about the arms drops um, being being sort of shielded by talking about them being humanitarian drops by the RAF. But also, I, like, I keep saying to people, you know, that the amount of fundraisers that suddenly leapt out of nowhere for Madea and one of them, I, I can't remember who'd actually set it up. It probably relates back to all of the NGOs that we've been talking about. But they'd raised over a hundred thousand dollars within forty-eight hours. Um, their target was one hundred and eighty thousand. Now, I, I'm just trying to say to people: think before you donate to these schemes, because actually, all you're doing are exacerbating. You're exacerbating the misery of the Syrian people. That's right. All is putting money into the pockets of regime change agents, drug pushers, child traffickers, mercenaries, killers, drug-fueled killers, capsicum-fueled killers, working for the NATO, the U.S. and Israel in the region to ensure reg- regime change. So, like, save your money, no? This, no, this, this is the amazing thing that, that this whole, in, in this era, era of crowdfunding now, that yeah. I, I saw this with, uh, in America, you know, after some of these sort of fake terror events and you have some of these fake victims, uh, so, and, and you have, you have like FBI informants doing fundraising off of their whatever, Fake issues uh, that they're doing because they're running COINTELPRO. So, so it's a it's a brilliant financial model. So the government doesn't actually yep. need to pay their nope. regime change agents or informants. That they'll crowdfund the finance for all the clandestine yep. activity. Isn't this a genius system? This is like it's beautiful, it's right? It's like the two sides of the coin opposing and working symbiotically. So you have the the terror brand. That we talked about, you know, the multi-gangs, the multi-layered gangs, the gang warfare, yep. the, the the brand names, be it Boko Haram, Al Qaeda, ISIS, Al Nusra, Khorasan. The list goes on, and then you flip the coin, and guess what? You know, you have the humanitarians who purportedly are opposing the terrorists, but in reality are working symbiotically with them to achieve the agenda on the ground. And this is really important to get across to people. So, so if you give money to a uh, Madaya uh, uh, crowd fundraiser for, like, you know, give food to the children or whatever, what are the odds? What What are the odds that some of the money that you're going to give is going to go to weapons or ammo or to help uh, a, a literally a listed terror organization fighters? 
uh, wreaking havoc, um, prolonging conflict uh, in that town. What are the odds of that? What's the percentage chance of that happening if you give money to one of these humanitarian crowdfunding things? Is it 10%? You think it's 5 1%, 0%? What do you think? I'd say it's about 99%. 99%. Well, yep. uh, I, I'll take... I'll take uh, I'll take your recommendation that that might be the case um, because you've looked at how these organizations are embedded, uh, who, who's actually driving them, where they get their funding from, what individuals are are part of these organizations, uh, what, what different hats they wear. You know, they're yeah. on, they're on this for one day, the next day they're they're posing for a white helmets photo. You know, it's incredible. And, I mean, we were talking um, recently, um, and I think you know that I'm working on it, um, about Rami Jara and the Syria campaign and then linking it back to Avaz. But if you remember at the beginning of the conflict, Avaz were running petitions, and I think they raised, like, it, it was in the millions. In or, But what was that for? That wasn't to, to <laughs> you know, to help Syria. What was it for? It was to set up an agitprop shop and an antipop ring in Syria made up of citizen journalists to buy them mobile phones, cameras, recording equipment. So there's the new thing called, when you see this in Syria, activist journalist, okay? This is a new term they've invented. You see it quite often. I've seen it a lot. And it's, so this is meant to, what it does is by using the word journalist, it gives them, it gives the activist uh, some sort of a higher a higher station other than just agita- a street agitator, basically, yeah. or, or, or you know, um, a Western regime change agent. It gives them an air of respectability or legitimacy, in a way, by using the term journalist. But you can't be an act... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm gonna, And this is going to break the heart of a lot of people out there, okay? In fact, it'll break my own heart, okay? You cannot be an activist and a journalist at the same time. You're either an activist or you're a, or you're a journalist. You can't do both. You can be a journalist one day and do journalism and maybe the next day be an activist, but you can't be both on the same day. This is the problem, okay? And, and this is what we see with the partis- this new partisan breed of partisan journalism, which we have at home domestically. In America, we have all these right-wing agitprop shops like Breitbart and uh, Red State and uh, tons and tons and tons of them. And the left-wing, we have all these left-wing agitprop uh, media organizations like Media Matters and uh, Raw Story uh, and what else? The Daily Beast, which is basically a, a fake alternative media set up but um, is probably sitting more into the State Department. Uh, but so we're exporting that agitprop to places like Syria, the activist yep. journalist. It's no such thing. So what they, what they are is they're just propagandists. Yep, absolutely. But they're little foot soldier propagandists. Yep. It's, like, it's like street teams, basically. So they're promoting. They're promoting ideas and ideas. They're putting out a lot of fake photos. A lot of falsified stuff. Human Rights Watch then picks it up, and you see Ken Roth tweeting out the same fake photos that uh, you see on the white helmets. It's 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 like a ring, you know, a, a propaganda ring. That's what you called it originally before uh, before Christmas. A propaganda ring. Yep. Totally. So, 
But yeah. uh, wh- why? So why do they do it, uh, Vanessa? What is the motivation? Is it just that they've managed to grease all these kids with a bit of money and recognition? Um, feel like they belong? They're going to belong, or they're going to have a seat at the table of power when the West sweeps in with their hand-picked government? What is the motivation here, or, or am I missing something? Well, I think the motivation um, certainly for the rebels is, I mean, um, talking to people within Syria, certainly from contacts within Aleppo, um, which is one of the most sort of heavily occupied um, by al-Nusra and by the White Helmets. Um, a lot of comments have come back to me that these were kind of um, the society low life. <laughs> that suddenly um, being a rebel, in inverted commas, before I get told off, um, gave them some form of status. It also, obviously, as we know, they're, they're pretty well paid, um, many of them. Um, and so it gave them status. It gave them um, bravado. It gave them recognition that they certainly would not have had before. It also, to some extent, probably gave them revenge over a society where maybe they had been marginalized or segregated for whatever reason. Sure. Um, societally speaking. You know, that's quite, that's quite classic, I think, in this situation. I was talking to somebody from Serbia today, and he said basically the same thing, that many of the kind of... Um, fabricated um, brigades that came into Kosovo were to some extent the the marginalized, the segregated, the ones that were um, susceptible to being co-opted into these um, movements. Um, Then, of course, we have the mercenaries. I mean, if you're talking about uh, the citizen journalists, people like Rami Jara, like um, our friend uh, Danny Abdul, sorry, and Danny, um, with some tariff, um, people like that. Again, you know, I think suddenly somebody is offering them um, status. They're saying to them, well, you're important. You'll come on to CNN. You'll come on to the BBC. Um, what you say will count. And, and, you know, we'll take care of you. We'll give you the equipment that you need. We'll give you a camera. We'll make you a name. Um, you will appear on Al Jazeera, you'll appear on CNN, you'll be the person, you'll be our anchor in, in Syria or Yemen or wherever it is. Um, and so, yes, I, I think very much it appeals to the ego, it appeals to um, people that are um, marginalized, segregated, perhaps, just, I hate using that word because I, I don't like being judgmental, but are to some extent considered to be low life within society or the dregs of society or certainly, you know, the crim- maybe the criminal element within society can be easily co-opted into these gangs and movements. Yeah. So, yeah, so the football stadiums shut down and then what? where do all the supporters go? Well, yeah, yeah so it, it, it makes sense. And, I, and you know, th- there is some social strata, uh, even in a country like Syria, it's definitely pronounced. There are definitely people that, that a lot of people that will believe they're getting the wrong end of the stick. Uh, yeah. I, I saw this in, in, in Lebanon to some degree as well, uh, bet- between Sunni and Shiites in certain places where business lines crossed and so forth, or a Christian, depending on where the, you know, where the line was drawn, you know, yeah. in that yeah. particular part of the country. It's just, that's just, that's just the way it is. Um, I mean, of course, then you do get, then you get, you know, as we were discussing also recently, the trained agents, which we think probably Ramijara was definitely one. Um, yeah. And we've seen um, James and Missouri and people like this that are definitely being trained 
Well, the um, British, the British ones. Uh, so Romney yeah. and Danny Diem. Uh, clearly, yeah. they're British. British accents. Spent a lot of time in Britain. Um, first name basis with the Home Office, or sorry, the Foreign Office, um, no doubt. But so they're they're sort of have elevated status there. So they're real in leadership positions in a way. Um, By the way, uh, somebody told me the other day. I think it was Syrian Perspective that I read it that um, Danny uh, is actually working with SOHR. <laughs> I haven't verified it yet, but apparently. He's oh, you're in kidding me! No, I'm not. So, so he's uh, he's he's up in the fl- in that flat in Coventry, making tea, <laughs> tea and coffee for uh, our friend Rami, right? <laughs> well, it's it's apparently yeah, according to um, making CSA, making up statistics, <laughs> creating creative. He's in the creative statistic department, I think. He's a head of creative stats. <laughs> so, but anyway, what you're describing there reminds me of that film 300 uh, the, about the the Spartans, you know, holding 300 at the hot gates, holding back 5,000 Persians. And there was one hunchback, uh, his name, I can't even remember, pronounce his name, but it was like... Um, a pietes or ephilites or whatever. He was like a hunchback and he wanted to join with uh, King Leonidas and King Leonidas said, no, you can't hold a shield because you're a hunchback. You've got a good... So anyway, he was sort of ostracized and then he went and he did a deal with the with the uh, Persian Empire and gave you know gave them, he gave them they gave him status and he gave him all the inside information and to help undermine um, Sparta society so he was he was an outcast in his own society but he gained status by the invading force um so they basically employed him so they they played on his the fact that he was marginalized and it gave him elevated status within the invading force and uh so it's sort of similar sort of thing but it's uh he, he like like President Assad said in the interview with Charlie Rose, which I played a couple of weeks ago. You know, when the opposition takes up arms, it's no longer an opposition. It's not political opposition. You can't be a political opposition and laying waste to uh, you know civilian areas and uh, attacking, killing police, and basically causing national instability. You, you're no longer a political opposition. You're an opposition. Your your armed opposition. So this is a military issue at that point, right? Absolutely. So, but they're going to say, well, they weren't listening to us, and we had to take up arms. Well, fair enough. And look what's happened. Mm-hmm. You, you think it's you think it's gone well? You know, is, has it been successful? Is is it worth it? And 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 one opposition person told me, um, if we have to do a deal with the devil, then we'll do a deal with the devil. And that was in two thousand and eleven. And that's exactly what they did, a deal with the devil. And look at the result. It's absolutely a catastrophe yeah. on so many levels. You know, it's, it's, it's horrible what's happened to Syria for everybody. It doesn't matter what side you're on. But I also think, I mean, I think what it, what, what's happening now as well, um, you were mentioning Yemen, but I think what we're seeing is this complete unraveling of, of Cameron's lies, which we knew to be lies about the reasons for bombing Syria which was for, obviously, um, British security in destroying ISIS. But actually what we're seeing, and, and Dan Glazebrook wrote something for The Independent today, what we're actually seeing is, of course, what's happening, which is inevitable and, and is probably managed and engineered and manipulated, is that we're seeing um, 
ISIS not only fleeing um, Syria into Yemen, but we're also seeing, obviously, um, the coalition flying ISIS um, from uh, Syria into Yemen, into Aden. And, no. and that can't be happening um, without UK and US um, complici- com- com- complicity because they're in the, the, the sort of HQ in Riyadh managing everything that's happening in Yemen anyway. So those ISIS operatives cannot be coming into Yemen without their um, approval. Um, and in fact, um, Francis Guy, a former British ambassador in Yemen, um, told the Independent, and this is from Dan Glazebrook's article, um, the famine and humanitarian situation is tragic in Yemen, but we should be talking about it in the context of security, asking, and wait for this, where is the next place that ISIS will go after any success by the United States, France, and now the UK and Syria? The answer is Yemen. ISIS is already strong there. Because of the instability in Yemen, we have created the next space for ISIS, for those displaced in Syria. Yeah, there you have it. There you have it. There you have it. But you were, you were telling me this uh, yeah. months, months ago. Yeah. Months ago. I hate to be, like, there are times, as you know, when we hate to be proved right, genuinely. I really hate to be proved right. But yeah. this just absolutely, barefacedly, blatantly, brazenly shows what the policy has been. And, you know, as you say, we're always, we can be ahead in some ways, but oh, when we see it unravel like this, it's just, it's, it's heartbreaking. Because yeah. you just, well, here we go, you know. Um, now Yemen is going to be um, infested with this cancer um, produced by Western governments to maintain and foment violence globally. And Yemen is the next stop. I mean, we said this a while back when James the Missourier, who's the um, British mercenary trainer of the White Helmets, when he disappeared from view, you remember? Mm-hmm. With the minute that Russia started bombing in Syria yep. um, and hitting the al-Nusra uh, headquarters and obviously damaging his precious white helmets. He disappeared from view and he's gone. Now, I, I think if you remember, we discussed it and at the time we said, I bet he's gone to Yemen. Yeah. And I still have, he's either in Yemen or he's in UAE. Yeah. Um, either gone back to Good Harbor. A, sh- a shift of operations, right? Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Sh- job done over there and now move on to the next front. So this is how they do it conflict management. So anyway. Look, uh, we're going to have to keep an eye on your work, uh, and also hopefully we're going to have more of your work up on 21st Century Wire. Vanessa Bealey, uh, give us a shout out to your website and uh, anything else that people need to keep their eye on or look at right now. Um, well, we should be watching the refugee crisis and what's what's sort of um, bubbling up in Serbia. I'm sorry, we were supposed to get onto that, but we've sort of, um, as always. <laughs> Yeah, well, well, yeah, the refugee crisis is being uh, injected into Serbia. Uh, that's the long and the short of it, right? Yeah, well, I think we're going to see a re-Balkanization, as you said the other day, on the Balkans. Yeah, they're, they're trying to induce uh, a repeat of uh, the religious and sectarian uh, pressure and strife, uh, which uh, took hold in uh in Yugoslavia specifically, they're trying to antagonize Syria because Syria is pro-Russian. That's one reason. But uh, break the back of Syria through the migrant crisis. Thank you very much, Turkey, for playing your role in uh, creating more chaos in Europe. Uh, and can you imagine they want to be a member of the EU? I find that incredible. But um, there you go.
but uh, we'll we'll get back to Syria. We'll maybe we'll we'll try to uh, Serbia as well. Uh, but we'll try to get you on the show. Um, we'll have Char- hopefully uh, Charmin Awari on the program next week uh, oh, to discuss uh, the uh, sectarian uh, Iranian Saudi and also Syria situation where it's going with the peace talks. She's covering it on the ground, so that should be good. Uh, but. Uh, the Wall Will Fall is your blog, Vanessa Bealey. There's a link to that if you click on her name. And we've gone a little bit over time on this uh, this program so far. But um, thank you so much, Vanessa, uh, for your time. Thank you for having me, Patrick. Always a pleasure.